What does it mean to be with others? And maybe what does it mean to be without others? Maybe the better question is what does it feel like to be with others? And maybe more difficult, what does it feel like to not be with others? Um, before Megan and I moved to Philadelphia, uh, we lived in Colorado. I was working in sales. Uh, we honestly didn't even know where Philadelphia was in the state of Pennsylvania. That's how little we knew about it. But uh, occasionally I would travel uh, on my sales trips. And uh, one of the last business trips I took, ironically, was to the Philadelphia Convention Center. There was a big show there. And I stayed in a hotel that's above Reading Terminal Market. Little did I know, Reading Terminal Market would later be one of my favorite places to visit in the whole area. And I was there and, and for three or four days, and I had a free evening. And I, I'm a baseball fan, and it was the spring. And I thought, you know, I, if I catch the train right, I can end up at Veterans Stadium, and I can go see a game. And it was like 22 games, 20, 20 games before they were going to implode the stadium. And I said, I got I to got, I go. So I decided to go just, you know, rather than just sitting in my hotel room uh, for the night, decided to go to the game. And, uh, and the good news is that it was like a really great game. Like I, I wasn't even a Phillies fan yet, uh, living in Colorado. And, uh, but I'm a baseball fan. And, you know, you got to cheer for the hometown team. And, and the good news is that, like, the Phillies had, like, an amazing game. I mean, it was incredibly exciting and lots to cheer about. And the bad news is that it was an incredibly great game and exciting and lots to cheer about. I don't know if you've ever been to an amusement park or a game or anything by yourself. But I found myself as weird as it sounded, like sitting there and they hit a home run and it was a great double play or whatever, and I, hey, yeah! And I, everyone's high-fiving and hugging and cheering and chest-bumping, and I am sitting there like, I, I don't know, even know what to do with my hands. And, and I remember getting on the train and, and going back and getting back to my hotel room, and I remember thinking, I think I actually would have had more fun tonight if I just watched the game on TV for my hotel room. It was just this weird idea that when I experience joy and I have no one to share it with, it actually takes my joy away. Anybody else relate to that? Anybody, like, gone to an amusement park by yourself? Like, it's just weird. You know? Like, there's just this sense of, like, why did I do this? And as small as it is, just a little baseball game, that, that has stuck with me. That we all need to share joy with people. And when we don't, it drains the joy that we already had. And we all know what it's like to feel like we're without others. Uh, some of us more than others this time of year. Social workers and psychologists, of course, tell us that loneliness is at its peak this time of year. Being vulnerable with you all, if I could summarize uh, just the past year of my own life, if I could summarize it in two words, I think the words would be intense and lonely. And so this series, this idea of with, is very personally important for me. And I know, knowing the stories of many of you in this room, you need this too. And so I, my prayer has been that this would really resonate with a lot of you all and with me as well uh, in this time. And we know, as Doug just said, and if we've been exposed to Advent before, this is this season of 
of longing, this sort of active waiting and expecting and anticipating, and more specifically, waiting for the arrival of a baby. And it's kind of weird, right? Because we say, wait, Jesus has already come, so we're sort of reenacting this. But it gives us training wheels to wait for the second advent, right? The coming of Jesus again. So these feelings that we have preparing for Jesus this month is a dress rehearsal, in a sense, for the greater story of this sort of return that we get to practice as Christians, of this borrowed hope of what's to come of Christ's return in the future. And the story that we're going to focus on this morning is about waiting and longing and expecting the arrival of a baby. Um, the story is found thousands of years prior to the story that we always focus on at Christmas time. And that's why I'm so excited to, to uh, dive into this. So if you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to turn to Genesis 16. As you're turning there, um, I want to give you a little bit of background information about the story. Uh, and, then, and then Kathy's going to read it here in just a moment. So God creates the world. He longed for human beings to be in right relationship with him, and that right relationship existed for a while. And then it was broken as these people that he created, not as robots, but had a choice to reject him or accept uh, God and his love and his relationship with them, chose to reject that, and sin enters the world. And the whole world felt the toll and the consequences of sin, resulting in pain and famine, death, destruction, loneliness, isolation, fear, just to name a few. And then there was a flood that destroyed those who were being rebellious in the midst of this, the presence of this holy God. And Noah and his family survived. God gave a covenant, a promise to Noah to never destroy uh, the earth again uh, by water. Uh, but once again, people chose to run away from God, to do their own thing. Their rebellion remained. God continued to pursue with patience and compassion, wanting them to live in right relationship with him, even in the midst of rebellion. God wanted to give a promise to a person and to a people specifically, but wanting to give it to a person who will live uh, trusting God to follow him. And he called a man named Abram, who, as we know, later had his name changed to Abraham. And God said to him one day, I want you to step outside of your tent at night, and I want you to look up at the, star, the, the stars in the sky, and I'll give you more descendants than anything you can count. Which was strange, because Abram and, and his wife Sarai, who would later be named Sarah, struggled with infertility and were in their old age. They were well beyond the years of childbearing, receiving their AARP card in the mail, but Abram and Sarai wondered, how can someone become parents of more descendants and stars than I can count, except we're missing one thing, God, and it's called a baby? How is that possible? What do you do? How do you do that if the pregnancy test doesn't ever show two lines on it? And God says, just wait, just wait. I promise, just wait. Abram, I just want you to trust me. So with that, Kathy's going to read from Genesis 16 for us. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build my family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian maidservant, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar, and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. 
Then Sarai said to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my servant in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your servant is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I am running away from my mistress Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will so increase your descendants that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, you are now with child and you will have a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me, for she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. That is why the well was called Beer Lahai Roy. It is still there between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. Thanks. How many, honestly, how many of you, there's some like alarm bells going off in your head like, wait, what? It's difficult to make sense of this story if we simply take our cultural constructs and try to apply it to the story. It just doesn't make any sense. And so let me give you a little bit more background here. I mean, right, we see slavery, like in our culture, this is weird. But then it seems to be that there's this appearance of like sex slavery. The social constructs of slavery, again, in ancient culture are quite different than what you know, we think of today in terms of slavery. And slave women, which were called maidservants, uh, thousands of years ago were considered, and again, this just sounds so weird to our ears, considered both property and legal extensions of their mistress. Again, it just sounds weird, right? Lots change today. And it looks weird, sinful, maybe even a little bit evil, but the, the context of the culture and the time, this was actually quite normal. Um, predating breakthroughs in medical technology, in vitro fertilization, adoption agencies, oftentimes you would use your maidservant as a surrogate. Again, this still feels weird, but this, this is sort of the norm of the day, and it was a way to ensure that a baby boy could be born so that there would be an heir in the family heritage and that the lineage would continue on. Hagar would be a housemaid as well as a surrogate here in this situation, again, strange, but we need to work hard to overcome our own cultural biases in a situation like this. Now, even though it's weird, I just want you to suspend judgment just a little bit here as we look at this. Right? So what's going on in the story? There's this promise of a baby boy. Again, God promises Abram and Sarai, you know, this is going to happen. Just wait. You're going to have countless descendants. And instead of trusting the promise, what do they do? They take it on their, themselves to try to force the issue. They try to say, well, God's taking too long. Now I'm going to intervene. You know, why is Sarai still barren if God has given us this promise? They try to, this bold initiative to supersede the situation. 
They don't think that God has kept his end of the bargain. And ultimately, I mean, here's the interesting thing. Ultimately, Sarai's plan worked, didn't it? It's not like it failed. It actually worked. The problem is, is it came through human effort and not in what God desired and saying, just trust me through the process here. And Sarai says, the Lord has kept me from having a baby. Abram, just go sleep with my servant Hagar, and then we can build a family together through her. So Abram sleeps with Hagar, and she becomes pregnant, and there's hostility between Sarai and Hagar. Hagar despises uh, Sarai, and Sarai is upset. And then Sarai goes to Abram, Blames him for the problem. Then you're responsible for this. You got this girl pregnant, Abram. Honey, isn't this what you wanted me to do? Yeah, but uh, no. Uh, I mean, this is like, in our minds, this is like Jerry Springer, right? I mean, think about it. I mean, it's just like try to insert yourself in this tension, this, this strangeness of all this. I mean, Abram, does, Abram backs off, right? He doesn't want to get in the middle of two fighting women. I'm not sure that's a bad move on his part, right? I, I'll just let you, you know, but, but he cops out a little bit, right? Well, you, you do whatever you want, whatever you want, honey. I'm not messing with you, whatever you want to do. Now, what's interesting in verse 5 is you see that Hagar actually despises her mistress Sarai. Now, we don't know what this looks like. Could she be bragging in this situation, flaunting, you know, looking at Sarah? But might she be saying, you know, Abram really performed well in the bedroom with me? I mean, this is getting, like, really personal. You struggle with infertility... Then you get a surrogate, and the surrogate gets pregnant. Many of you know the story of Megan and I and our struggle with infertility. This is a personal story. When Megan and I, when we were living still in Colorado before moving here and really struggling with the doctors and the news and our own infertility, uh, we were at a party at Andrew Hess's house and there were a few dozen people over at his house, and we were having a great time. I think it might have been around the holidays, actually. We were having a great time playing games, hanging out. And I got a, room, I got a call from my roommate from college, and we were pretty close. And he had been trying to get a hold of me, like, pretty purposefully the last few days, and we had missed each other. And so during the party, I, thought, I said, you know, we've been trying to track each other down. Let me just slip out real quick and be like, hey, how's it going? What's up? And uh, he's like, well, I, I just, I've, I've been needing to tell you something for a little bit, and I, I know it's not easy, but I just thought I'd want to let you know before uh, it's public. Um, but I got my girlfriend pregnant. And I just remember going into Andrew's bedroom and shutting the door and hearing everybody laughing and having fun and celebrating on the other side of the door and just sitting on the floor and just crying. God, we want nothing more than a baby. And my roommate from college calls me about an unwanted pregnancy. I mean, this is personal for Sarah, Sarai and Hagar. 
this cuts deep. This hurts. And remember, women in the ancient world didn't have a whole lot of honor. And the way they were honored was through the status of marriage and bearing children. And so Hagar, though she's a slave girl, and she's not married and she's a slave, she's pregnant and her mistress isn't. She's just one-upped her mistress, in a sense. Then it says that Sarai mistreats Hagar. It's never right, but it is understandable. And Sarai's abuse of Hagar could be out of jealousy or hurt or just trying to get back at her servant, put her in her place. And so Hagar, in this helpless situation, runs away. And this young, enslaved, pregnant, and hurt foreigner is now on the run. And verse 7, it says, And the angel of the Lord found Hagar. Just looking at it this week, I was just so overwhelmed by that phrase. Found Hagar. Found her. And she's running away. She's in the wilderness. That The servant of the Lord, the messenger of the Lord, found Hagar. And the servant, the messenger says, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? Two questions. Do you notice that Hagar only answers one? I'm running away from my mistress. Now, by her location in the story, you can tell that she's trying to go south to run away back to Egypt, to go home. And... The messenger says, go back to your mistress and submit to her. I mean, this is perplexing. The angel tells her to go back to her abuser. This is a little different. In verse 10, then the angel gives her a promise that you see there. You'll have so many descendants, you won't be able to count them. Your smartphone won't have enough storage to be able to hold all the pictures of your great-great-grandchildren. And, and by the way, you're pregnant, and congratulations, and it's a boy. And his name is going to be Ishmael, because God has heard of your misery. Right? Ishmael means God hears. Now, what's interesting in studying it this week is that the word misery is actually the key phrase in the whole story. It comes up here, your misery, but also it comes up in the form of a verb. So the mistreatment that Sarai gives to Hagar says that the, the actual thing there is brought misery upon her. So this, there's this repeated thing of misery. Now, mi misery isn't a word we use. I mean, we use the word maybe miserable. Oh, I feel miserable. I've got the flu, right? Misery isn't a word we often use, but when was the last time you were in misery? Maybe you are in misery now. And what does Ishmael mean again? God hears. That God hears us in our misery. And then there's this line. I don't know if you caught it. <laughs> Did you read in the promise there? It said, he'll be a wild donkey of a man. Like, what does that mean, you know? I mean, I don't know if that's like an insult or is that like a great thing? Like if someone called me a wild donkey of a man, I'd be like, what do you mean by that? <laughs> but then the messenger says there'll be conflict wherever Ishmael goes in his life, which doesn't sound like a blessing, does it? We've all been around those people, haven't we? 
It's like, dude, why do you have to screw everything up? Why? Every time that person walks in the room, you're like, here we go again. Here's another disaster waiting to happen. I just saw Aaron look at Sam. I don't know if that was implying anything in your marriage, but I'm not going to ask. <laughs> and then in the midst of all of this, in verse 13, if you got your Bible, your phone, I, I, this is really important in verse 13. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. You are the God who sees me. Now the phrase there is El Roi. El Roi, the God who sees, or the God who sees me. El Roi. Here's the cool thing. God always tells other people his name. In fact, he's got lots of names that he gives throughout the Bible. And each time he gives the name, it's a part of his character, his quality, who he is. Every time he tells humans their name, except once in the Bible, this story. This is the only time a human gives God a name. Hagar, helpless, slave girl, Egyptian runaway, scared out of her mind, pregnant girl, gives God the only name in the Bible. That's pretty cool. L-O-E. And Hagar says, I have seen the one who sees me. To see the one who has seen you means that someone is with you. Someone was with Hagar in her pain and her loneliness and in her helpless situation. There's another time where God speaks similarly to slaves about a message of hope. Moses, in the burning bush, in Exodus chapter 3, says this, just a few chapters later after the Hagar story. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering, so I have come down, come down, to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land into a good and spacious land. This is a repeated theme here. God seems to have a track record for seeing people in their misery, hearing their cries, understanding them, and intervening with them. Another form of misery that God sees, meets, understands, and hears. Now, hang with me. You know I get nerded out by this stuff, but this stuff is awesome. Hang with me here. This is fascinating, all right? Listen to this. Now, in the story, you see an angel. An angel can be, you know, big wings and scary and whoa, right? But it can also mean messenger. A messenger. Which could be an angel, but it doesn't have to be. But Hagar also says at the end of the story what? You are the God who sees me. Not, you are the one who you serve as a messenger of the God who sees me, but you are the God who sees me. Wait, 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 how can you be a messenger of God, but also then have Hagar give you the name, you are the God who sees me? Now, this is really cool. Some scholars believe, and they have a fairly decent argument here, that this angel, this messenger, was one of the first manifestations of Jesus 
being present in the Old Testament. Could it be that Jesus is the one as the messenger of God who comes down to see Hagar in the desert? The one who says, I see you, I hear you, I'm with you, I understand you, even in your suffering and your pain, I won't leave you. Now, thousands of years later, another angel visits a young, scared girl. Her pregnancy has caused a problem. It's less than an ideal situation. The angel visits her and gives her a promise. You are pregnant. You're going to have a baby boy, and I'm going to give you his name too. And you're to call him Yeshua, which means he saves. God, who was with Hagar, heard the cries of the people for 400 years of silence. Right? Some of you who have a Bible, not just a smartphone app, there's normally one piece of thin paper between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Sometimes it's blank. Sometimes it says New Testament on it, but it's just blank. That one blank page represents 400 years of nothing. Nothing. Silence. From the last word of the last book of the Old Testament to the first word in the first book of the New Testament, 400 years of white paper silence. And he says, I've heard the cries of my people for these 400 years. They are in misery. And I must come down to be with these people that I see and hear and understand. Now I want to be with them. And instead of hostility, he brings shalom and peace and unity. And because of this God, this El Roi, who sees us in our pain, the great thing is we don't have to do a few things. We don't have to, nor should we, sweep it under the rug. It's no big deal. Get over it. Move on. Because God is El Roi, the one who sees us, we don't have to attack it by just saying, try harder. Just, just try harder. And because this El Roi God who sees us in our pain and in our hopelessness and helplessness and our suffering, we don't have to wallow in it either. I'm stuck. There's no hope. I'll never get out of this. All three of those are things that our world loves to communicate to us. But because we have an El Roi God, we don't have to do any of those three. And I know some of you have and are feeling hopeless and helpless because I know your stories. I know some of you have been searching for a job for months. And it's not just impacting your wallet, it's impacting your identity and your worth. It's another year of praying, and it's another year of being single. Some of you have lost a spouse or a loved one this year, and the holidays already seem unbearable. Or like Sarai, all you want is a baby.
So what does the story of Hagar have for us right now? Right now in the midst of this Advent season. What do we do with this? I think there are a couple things. First, one of the things I've loved this week looking at this story is that the Hagar story gives us a clearer picture of what makes Christian hope distinct. There's a lot of people talk about hope and, you know, Hallmark Channel and just wish upon a star and, oh, it's snowy now. Oh, there's hope. Really? I mean, those are nice and all, but really? So what makes Christian hope distinct? An accurate, an accurate Christian perspective of hope, even in the midst of suffering, realizes that God does not promise that suffering won't happen. And he doesn't promise that suffering happens before we follow Jesus, but when once we follow Jesus, then our lives are going to be perfect. Actually, we promise more suffering. Jesus told us directly and bluntly, you're trying to avoid suffering, you shouldn't be a Christian. No, we will suffer. So where's that hope in that, JR? That doesn't sound very distinct. (laughs) The thing is this. We will suffer, but the hope is always that we will have God with us in our suffering. Did you notice that God didn't appear to Hagar before being mistreated by Sarai? The messenger could have showed up before then. The messenger could have showed up before she ran away. But God appeared to her in the desert after she'd run away from the mistreatment. And only then did the Lord bless her. Only then. If you hear the word desert or wilderness in your Bibles, those are used interchangeably. Now, by the way, wilderness just simply means uninhabited land. You can't possibly live for a long period of time in the wilderness or in the desert, okay? It isn't sand and camels and, you know, Lawrence of Arabia. Um, Let me show you. Yeah, look at these pictures. It's actually quite mountainous. It's like rocky crags, and it's it's treacherous. Um, The times I've walked through the Judean wilderness, your heart races and saying, I think I have enough water. But if I don't, I'm done. I hope I have enough shade on my hat. If not, there's no hiding. That's where Hagar is. Right in the middle of that. Again, wilderness, you you can visit there, but you can't live in it. There's not enough resources to survive. But have you ever noticed how God seems to do some of his best work in places like that? Old Testament prophets, Moses, Elijah, King David, Hagar, Abraham, John the Baptist, even Jesus. As harsh as the wilderness experiences are, it seems to be, it seems to be, it seems to be an expression of God's grace. As God meets us in our wilderness, He seems to teach us things in the wilderness that we can't learn any other place. God's people during the exodus out of Egypt spent several years in the wilderness. In fact, it seems that God was taking his good old time and was in no particular hurry to get his people out of the wilderness. 
he had some things to teach them. And the truth is, we're desert people too. We are wilderness people as well. God does not always take us out of the desert, nor does he always take the desert out of us. But what he always promises us is that even in there, we're not, we're not alone. We are not alone. We are not alone. And it's weird, but that seems to be the mailing address of God's people. Because it's in the wilderness that we actually learn to trust him completely. And God's purposes are actually, as weird as this sounds, it's very un-American, it's actually for the struggle. Because in the struggle, it's where we actually grow to become intimately connected to know and be known, to see and be seen by this God who meets us out there. We may hate the wilderness. I, I've met very few people that actually like the wilderness. And I think they're lying to me when they say that. But one thing's true. It is a vital part of our spiritual development. Spiritual maturity is learning to embrace the wilderness as the harsh grace of God. The great and terrible wilderness as an expression of God's harsh grace for the people that he loves. We have a God who suffers with Hagar there and with us there. He is with us. Now, just about every funeral and every Hallmark store and every card store has some nice calligraphy of the 23rd Psalm. But do you know actually what we're saying when we recite the 23rd Psalm? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Why, why, why? Because you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Here's what American cultural pop psychology tells us. Even though I'm about to enter the valley of the shadow of death, I will think positive thoughts and be able to skirt around it. Right? Isn't that what we're told? Just think positive. Pull yourself up. Have confidence in yourself and you can do it. Until you can't. And then you're in the wilderness. See, a theology of suffering, the hope in that tells us that we shouldn't be shocked when we actually walk through that valley. But we shouldn't be panicking because we're never alone. We're never alone. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The tools used for protection and comfort from a shepherd to his sheep. When a dumb, scared sheep walks by, a shepherd will simply stick his rod out and just grace it over the back of the wool very softly, tenderly, and it will relax the sheep. Oh, not alone. Someone's here. Well, the other thing I think this helps inform for us regarding Hagar, Hagar's story regarding Christian hope is that you are seen by God you are heard by God, and you are understood just where you are. 
I want you to focus for just a moment on the word known. K-N-O-W-N, known. Christian theology, the Christian story, the Christian truth makes that word incredibly important to you and your story. You are not unknown. You're known. That's what Hagar was lacking. Does anyone see me? Does anyone know me? My pain is unique. No one understands me. No one gets me. Boom. I am the one who sees you, Hagar. The God who sees you is the one who knows you. You may suffer, but you are not unknown. You are known. And in the Advent video we just watched, Caleb Mangum, who wrote and read these words, when indecision takes hold, certainty escapes me and always has. Still there is presence in the midst of this goodness and beauty and most of this. Listen close, hear me speak. Do you hear God whispering to you? Do you hear him speaking? Simply saying, you are seen. You're heard, you're known. Emmanuel, God with us. No wonder God is with the brokenhearted and the poor and the downcast and the downtrodden because they're in the wilderness. And he does some of his best work in the middle of that wilderness. So what makes Christian hope distinct? It's knowing that while we suffer, we are not alone, that we are known. And this thought hit me last night. It is far better to suffer and know that God is with us than to thrive and to believe that God is far from us. It's far better for us to suffer and to be convinced that we are known and that God is with us than for us to thrive and for us to think that God is not near. So here's how I want to close. I want to ask all of us if we would stand right now. And we are the people whom God loves for sure. But there are some of us who are standing right now who maybe you just say, man, I get Hagar. I am Hagar. Maybe as the wilderness pictures came up, you actually could see a little bit of yourself on one of the mountains. Maybe you find yourself in the story more than you want to be, and you feel hopeless or directionless or hurt or stuck. If that's you, if you can relate to Hagar in a real way in this story right now, if you feel like you're in the wilderness, if you're in the desert, the valley of the shadow of death, in some way this connected with you, I just simply want to ask that you would have the courage right now to just quietly sit. If that's you, just take a seat right now. And for those of us who are standing, there's probably someone near you. Probably, if they're next to you, your hand is just at their shoulder. If there are people near you, I just want us to be able to just take a moment to pray for them. You may not even know them, and that's okay. But I just want to leave just a moment or two for us to pray for the Hagars in the room, that they would know that they're known, that they're seen, that they're heard in their misery. So just gravitate to some people around you right now.
Lay a hand on a back or on a shoulder. And just gently reach out to them. And you can pray quietly, you can pray out loud, but just take a moment now um, to do that in this moment. And then I'll close this in prayer in just a little bit. God, I, I just want to start by thanking my friends, thanking you for my friends, that they have enough courage to be able to sit down and say, I relate to Hagar, and I need to hear from the messenger of God. Lord, um, just as it's suspected that this messenger of God could have been Jesus himself. I pray that the messengers that are physically standing around and touching a shoulder or a back, that they would feel that Jesus is working through these messengers of friendship around them right now. Lord, no one enjoys the wilderness, and yet it does seem to be our mailing address. And you seem to do your best work there. And if nothing else, God, I pray that my friends who are seated, who so wish that they were standing right now, that they would know that they are not alone, that they are known by you, and that you have something unique to teach them that quite possibly they can't learn if they weren't in the wilderness. So God, we still want to hear from you. And we want to be able to one day look back and be able to say, God, you are El Roi, the God who sees me. Regardless of the circumstances that are in the room, whether they're things that have happened to us or things that we've done, decisions we've made that have prompted something to be in the position we're in, I pray that you would give hope, not Hallmark Channel hope, but real hope to know that even though we're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, we do not have to fear evil because we are not alone, because the shepherd's staff and the rod are the things that protect and provide comfort. Rub your staff and your stick over the top of the wool of these people who are seated to just remind them, I'm here. I'm protecting you. I've got you. And Lord, for those of us who are standing, there will be times where we will be seated. And right now, God, I would ask that you would implant in our brains right now this idea of suffering but not being alone. Because when we are seated one day, we will need to have people who put their hands on us and pray for us. And we will need to be reminded of the Hagar story. So thank you for even honoring this girl, Hagar, and giving her enough courage to give you a name and that you receive that name, that you care for runaway slave girls and you care for women and men in this room in their circumstances. We thank you, Jesus. It's in the name of Jesus. In the name of the Father who sees us and the Spirit who comforts us. Amen. Amen.